Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS and your host. We hope you had an outstanding weekend, got to get outside, enjoy the fall weather, maybe catch some balloons here or there. It is that time of year in New Mexico. I absolutely love it. I hope you do too. By the way, if you have tips on great places for fall foliage, places to see that this year, love for you to share that with us so we can get that word out to folks and we can all take in one of the most beautiful seasons of the year here in New Mexico. All right, we had a ton of content on last week's show. We want to bring you, including some we just didn't have time for in the show, and we're going to start things off with our line opinion panel. A reminder, this week, that was Dan Foley's former state House Minority Whip. Also, Laura Sanchez, a line regular and an attorney. We also welcome back to Michael Bird, who's a public health expert. Lots of great insight from Michael. Love to have him here. And one of the things they tackled was news this week uh, that the state would not be releasing standardized test scores uh, because of COVID-19 and the disruption to normal education here in New Mexico. Been talking about this a lot. People been thinking about it a lot. And curious what you think about that um, idea and that approach to not release those test scores. Obviously, there's been upheaval, sporadic testing, all kinds of issues there. But we have to get a handle on exactly where our students are, how far behind they are, what we need to do to address the lost learning during the pandemic. And so we wanted to check in with the line panelists and get their thoughts on all of that. We know that the education problems in New Mexico predate COVID by a great amount. And of course, we can't talk about education without talking about the Yazi Martinez lawsuit that the state is trying to rectify where it was found not to be upholding its constitutional requirement to provide a quality education to all New Mexico students. So this really has to do with underserved populations of students and all of that only exacerbated by the challenges of COVID-19, connectivity, broadband, access to services, all of those kind of things. So let's kick it right over to Gene Grant and the line. I think we all expected the performance of New Mexico students to wane during the year plus of remote learning. Policymakers have learned some tough lessons of their own over the past week. Standardized testing was so sparse in 2020 and 2021 that the state isn't bothering to release last year's results saying it, be an, it would be an incomplete picture. Legislative analysts think they can piece together an image, but it isn't pretty. They told lawmakers that they believe elementary students have fallen to barely three in 10 making grade level progress in math and reading, and they have a sneaking suspicion that estimate doesn't count underachieving vulnerable students. Dan, we've had a sense that students are suffering. Republicans, Democrats are eager to get everything pointed the right way, but are they flying blind here? having no data to work with, was this the right choice? Yeah, they're not flying blind. I mean, the situation has been 
the same situation in New Mexico for time and memoriam. I mean, this is a the pandemic. But this is a little bit. But this is a little bit different, though. This is a little bit different. I mean, that, those numbers are are are, are frightening. Honestly, it's, it all it did was exacerbate the problem. There's, there's there, this isn't different. All it did was highlight the the, the problems we have in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people forget that we're a majority uh, rural state. And so when you start closing down schools in some of these small towns, that is the center focal focal point of all life in that community. Mm-hmm. And that's the place where people go to get services, go to get help, go to get out of bad situations. And when you shut that stuff down, there's going to be horrible ramifications rippling through these communities where, you know, they don't have a lot of these communities don't have, you know, courtrooms and offices and they, they got a school. And uh, and so, you know, I think that, you know, we're seeing that. Um, we've had sort of a bandaid on a bleeding artery, but once we, you know, shut everything down and put these kids, I mean, I, even some of the bigger towns, I mean, I remember seeing posts on, on Facebook in Roswell of kids having to walk over to the school to sit out front of the closed school so they could log on to the internet so they could do their schoolwork. And so we're shocked that this is, you know, that this is the situation we're having in New Mexico. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we have, we haven't had good access to internet in this state ever. Uh, now we're talking about spending hundreds of millions of dollars to run wire throughout the state of New Mexico, and everybody's moving from you know digital internet to to wireless internet. We just we just always seem to be a day late and a dollar short, mm-hmm. and I think these numbers have really highlighted it. I hope that this will get people focused on saying we cannot continue to write off entire generations of kids. We have got to address this situation with seriousness. We have to have adults step up to the table, and there's multiple levels of problems. If we don't address this in New Mexico across party level party lines, we are losing these kids in train loads me, to uh, our surrounding states. I'm hearing that, um, Laura. You know Patty Lundstrom, of course. She heads the Legislative Finance Committee currently. Uh, interesting. She tweaked Hannah Scandera's old line of "What gets measured gets done." You might remember that by saying, "Quote: You can't understand what you can't measure." End quote. The PED budget is $3 billion in New Mexico. Sort of a similar approach, but what should we look at to get an idea of how to target money? Or is the problem so persistent, as Dan just said, that lawmakers already know at this point? Uh, well, I mean, I, th- I, I tend to agree with uh, what Dan is saying. This, is a, this has been a long, long problem we've mm-hmm. had. Um, and, but the pandemic has absolutely exacerbated um, the situation. And I think it's become pretty clear that um, online learning, distance learning is uh, just rife with problems, especially for um, students who already may be predisposed to fall behind. The online learning makes it that much more difficult. Mm-hmm. They really need to be in an environment where they have a, a teacher in front of them, where they're interacting with students, where they're using you know, multiple skills and not just staring at a computer screen. So I think that we have to figure out how to um, target that funding um, to the most vulnerable and get people back into the classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's exacerbating all of it as well is um, an increase in retirements. Yes. So we're seeing more and yep. more teachers that are retiring sooner than they would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just creating it's going to continue to be the case because you know teachers who have been in for a long time they're getting burned out and they're going to continue to, to retire so that needs to be addressed um and the legislature could do a lot i think to increase um you know recruitment of new teachers training mm-hmm. teachers and getting more people into the classrooms 40 percent 
Uh, increase in retirements for teachers and school staff. That's the biggest raw number in seven years. That's amazing, Michael, uh, when you think about it. Hey, real quick, I want to get back to this idea of, of how we don't have data on this. It was an interesting quote, Michael, from our Secretary-Designate for Public Education Department, Kurt Steinhaus. Um, quote, our research and evaluation department does not exist, end quote. He said in response to recommendations by an LFC analyst Wednesday, meaning they don't even have the staffing necessary to track data and meet the demands of education-related legislation. Something's quite wrong there. When you th this is the worst time possible, it would seem to me, to have that department underfunded and understaffed. Well, what's the ramifications of this? Well, let me, let me just say something. There, there, the, the Yazzie Martinez case, clearly, mm -hmm. I mean, that was, that's the miner's canary for all of this education. Um, and I think it, it, you know, there's, you can make a case. I think the case has already been made that there are populations and communities that have, have whose needs have never been met. Yeah. In addition to what's going on now with the not, not, I mean, you don't have good data. I mean, that's, it's really, I mean, that's how long has, how, how long has there been a department of education? How long have we had major institutions, mm -hmm. universities, here in, in the state of New Mexico and, and nothing has, and, and this is all we have at this point. When you, pivoting off, what happened with COVID really has demonstrated the lack of solid infrastructure and investment in schools, in medical care, in roads, in, in many systems that you need, that, that, that a sophisticated community needs to, to, for its people to begin with pre-COVID. Now with the advent of COVID, it's mm -hmm. it's taken out, it's impacted all of those those systems, education, healthcare, and a whole host of others. And so, until we have a until we really, I think, look at a systems approach to 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 building a solid infrastructure that supports these things, that produces educated, healthy people in a community, we're going to continue this have these sort of issues and we're going to continue to struggle. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, you know, the other thing is, I wonder how many legislators have their children who are school age, how right. many of them are in private schools? How many of them are in the public system? I'd like, I think that's a fair question. Somebody needs to look at that mm -hmm. because maybe there'd be more investment if they in fact had children that were part of those systems and not in private schools, mm -hmm. just something to think about. Interesting point there. Hey, Daniel, there's also the problem of being able to compare various versions of standardized testing, which has changed a lot in the past few years. As you know, our current governor moved away from the park tests required by our former governor, but the plan to use SAT tests to evaluate high schoolers hasn't rolled out as promised, at least in, uh, it will be 2022 and maybe even 2023 before we have reliable data. Same question. Is that a failure? Are our kids being failed here? Are parents being failed here? What happened? It's a failure of epic proportions across the board. We have a $3 billion. I mean, look at the amount of money we spend on education That's every right. year. And we're saying we don't know what the data is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I can't. My wife can tell me what the data is and what we spend on our grocery bill. So, I mean, I don't know how we're spending billions with a B, mm -hmm. billions in a state where the median income is 40 plus thousand dollars a year. If people aren't listening and saying, wait a minute, we are spending billions of dollars in a department and the answer is, oh, we just don't know what the results are for that. If that doesn't just make people say, what in God's name is going on? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what will. So, you know, I, I, I've always believed this in, in when I spent was time in the, when I spent time in the legislature, there were two things you always did. You knew who to ask for the right data 
because they would give you the answer you wanted. And the other thing we always used to say, if you don't like the data, just wait a few minutes, it'll change. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that the answer from everybody is we don't have this data. We don't have that data. The last governor blamed the governor before that. This governor blames that governor. The legislature blames the LFC. The LFC blames the schools. And at the end of the day, you know, you and I are still pumping out $3 billion three plus billion with a B people, mm -hmm. tax dollars, and nobody knows what we're getting for it. After the last, last word on that, let us know if you've seen any bright spots in education by going to our New Mexico in Focus Facebook page. Our next voice, familiar one to those of you who uh, follow us here on the show, Dee Dee Feldman has been a great friend to New Mexico in Focus for a lot of years. She's a former state senator. And that just begins to scratch the surface of a long career in politics here in New Mexico. And uh, she has a new memoir out that's called Ten More Doors, an uh, allegory of or a metaphor for the knocking on doors to earn votes during the election season. So again, it is a memoir, lots of personal stories about her journey, why she decided to run in her first race, what she learned from knocking on all those doors. And that also is going to tie into something we'll have in a bit about her thoughts about the redistricting process that is currently going on uh, and why that is so important, knowing your district and what the makeup is. And so we are thrilled to talk to her about her experiences and her book, Ten More Doors. I'm Gwyneth Dolan. Dee Dee Feldman is a former state senator and a frequent guest on our show where she has opined on topics such as healthcare, ethics, good government, and much more. She's the author of several books. Her latest is 10 More Doors, A Path to Change. Dee Dee Feldman, welcome to the show. Thanks, Gwyneth, for having me. My pleasure. I learned from your memoir that you were a protest marching, pot smoking, deadhead hippie. <laughs> and, and I was not surprised. Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word hippie. I wouldn't use the word hippie because I was more of an activist than I was a hippie. I, when I think of hippie, I think of, you know, living in the country and, and uh, not being engaged in ria politique. <laughs> what is surprising, reading the memoir, is that you managed to get yourself elected to public office as a woman from the rather traditional farming area of the North Valley. Um, how did you win over people who didn't share your upbringing, your religion, even some of your values? Well, you know, when I, I decided to run and I ran for the city council first and I lost, um, and then I ran for the New Mexico Senate and won, um, I was a little intimidated because when I went down to look at the people that were registered to vote, they all had Hispanic last names. And um, although I had lived in the area since 1976, people kept telling me, you'll never win because uh, New Mexicans vote based on ethnicity, and especially in the Democratic primary, you, you haven't got a chance. And, you know, I, I just didn't want to believe that. I didn't want to believe that. And maybe it was true, but I decided to act as if it wasn't true. And so I just went door to door um, and gave people the chance to get to know me. 
to see that I was not a threat and um, to try to disprove that theory. And I did disprove that theory and I had a great time doing it. You have a chapter about tortilla windows uh, in the wall separating your yard from your neighbor's right. yard. What did your neighbors in the North Valley teach you about tolerance? Well, um, the first thing to know is that we, we moved into the neighborhood um, in 1976, bought a little white uh, hut, I would say, with the idea of transforming it into a solar adobe, a passive solar adobe um, hacienda. Um, and of course, you know, that was quite ambitious. My husband is a, a, a designer builder, but still in 1975, we had visions of, uh, of a solar greenhouse on the south side. And so we um, started laying adobes up, um, constructed a big volcano pit. We didn't have enough money to buy a mixer. And so we mixed the, the mud in a pit with hose and our neighbors, and then tried to lay up adobe walls, and our neighbors kept driving by and looking at, you know, what these crazy gringos were doing out in their front yard. Finally, they took pity on us and stopped and uh, told us how to, uh, how to lay adobes. And uh, our neighbors, uh, from whom we brought our property, uh, helped us uh, lay up walls, and uh, one of the things that our neighbor insisted upon was um, making sure there was a small window in the wall separating our property so we could pass tortillas back and forth. You know, I'm not a big tortilla maker, but she was, and uh, it was a real symbol of, of neighborliness, I think. Um, and you need to be a good neighbor in the North Valley because it's such a diverse area um, you'll get a beautiful, territorial, expensive house uh, next to, uh, you know, a, a place that has uh, sofas out in the front yard that have been rained on and, and the uh, cars have been saved for parts in the side yard. And people do tolerate one another. Um, and it's kind of a code, especially uh, when I was um, building our house and, and campaigning for office. Um, in the early 90s and before, it was, um, you know, it was a question of, um, of survival. Um, I have a, a picture, or I ha have a picture in my mind that I tried to put in the book about my first night in the North Valley, uh, which erupted in gunfire across the street. And um, uh, I thought, wow, my research for this book has been or for this house and our, my new neighborhood is totally inadequate. Uh, all I did was eat at Mexican restaurants up and down 4th Street and loved them. And uh, boy, I didn't, I didn't really figure this is what I was getting into. But it was a total aberration. And uh, it was a Valley High School graduation. And uh, we got past that and we've loved the neighborhood and we still live in the same house uh, that we reconstructed. Now, before you came out here in 1972, you were a Quaker volunteer building a school in Uganda, and you had an epiphany there about government and society. 
What happened? Well, um, before I came to New Mexico, I was a high school teacher. I was a high school teacher at a Quaker school in Bucks County, Pennsylvania called George School. And uh, part of the tradition at that school and for many uh, Quaker organizations is uh, the idea of a work camp, which is very much like the Peace Corps. It actually was the precursor to the Peace Corps. And so in 1972, my husband and I took 10 high school students uh, who were my students uh, to Uganda. And uh, our, our job was to join with African students and build two classroom buildings there um, far out in the country uh, in Uganda. It was a brutal year to be in Uganda because it was the year of Idi Amin. Uh, he was at the height of his power. And while we were there, um, the entire middle class of the country, which was Asians, uh, who had been brought there uh, years ago to work on the railroad, they were expelled uh, and given two weeks uh, to get out of the country. It was, really gave me the feeling of what it must have been like in Europe. Uh, bef uh, before the absolute takeover of Hitler uh, and the Nazis throughout Europe. Um, and so um, one, one day I, I got to teach uh, in elementary school there. Um, and I got, and the class was, was mostly um, teenage boys. And they were, um, they were really uh, operating probably at a, a third or fourth grade level, but they knew so much from their lives. And of course, um, I try to translate. My question is, what is power? Um, and what is political power and how is it derived? Um, and their answers were more instructive than anything I have heard since. And it gave me an appreciation, of course, for democracy um, and for um, people choosing their leaders rather than having them imposed upon them. Uh, many of these uh, kids uh, went on to become part of the Lord's Army uh, and the incredible brutality that spread across that, that part of the world in the years that followed. So, you know, I kissed the ground when I got back. Um, and uh, it influenced me uh, more than I had thought at the time. And that's what happens when you write a memoir. You, you kind of recall what happened and was that important? Was that not important? Well, that was actually a lot more important in my life than I had thought and uh, set me on a direction uh, to really value democracy. Um, and public service. So then by the late 80s, you, you started working on political campaigns. You were a press secretary uh, for uh, candidates like Tom Udall. And in 1988, all but one of your candidates lost. But you wrote that losing was just the beginning. What does that mean? Well, losing is just the beginning, and particularly in the 1980s and the early 1990s, it was rare for women to run for office. The first um, two candidates that I ran, that I uh, helped, were one, my pediatrician, uh, Dr. Suzanne Brown, who I think delivered half the babies in the South Valley and ran for the school board, and asked me, as I was delivering my daughter, uh, would I be her campaign manager? 
And I said, well, I just gave birth. I'm, I'm busy. And she said, it's all right. It's all phone calls. Uh, and, and you've got an excuse from me anyway. So I did it. She won overwhelmingly. Um, but the real serious campaign was the first woman to run for, um, seriously, U.S. Senate in New Mexico. And that was Judy Pratt, who ran in 1984. Um, I learned a lot from that campaign. It was... Uh, one of the first one of the first years of the woman uh, Geraldine Ferraro was nominated uh, for vice president that year. Judy Pratt lost in a landslide to Pete Domenici. Um, these were the Reagan years, uh, but it was a women's campaign. I I met a lot of people there um, that uh, I continue to be allied with throughout my campaign. We were working on things like the ERA at that time. Um, and um, Equal Pay, which is a continuing campaign. And we lost, but we went on. Um, and then several other campaigns that I worked for, uh, Brand Calkin uh, was more of a campaign of environmentalists. And we lost very narrowly that year. We kept building uh, each year. And uh, uh, finally, uh, in uh, the early 1990s, uh, women began to um, get a little more serious, learn how to raise money, learn how to ask for help, um, and be taken more seriously. Um, and uh, finally, in uh, 1992, uh, was a nationally and in New Mexico, um, and I write about this a little bit um, in a chapter called The Bitch and Moan Party, uh, which was a gathering of women in the wake of Anita Hill's um, treatment by the Judiciary Committee. Uh, we got together and started discussing uh, how do you do polling, how do you do fundraising, um, who's a good campaign manager. And the next year, there were a number of women that were elected to the New Mexico legislature, um, including Dennis Picro, uh, Mimi Stewart, uh, Liz Stefanics, um, Ann Riley, um, and others. And nationally, there were there were there was that was the year of the woman when, when Barbara Boxer, Diane Feinstein, Patty Murray, um, uh, and and others were elected. And in your book, you write about kind of the the very basic steps of winning, and it is walking door to door, just ten more doors. You clipboard in hand, and I yep. remember when I lived downtown, you used to knock on my door with your clipboard. You have a list in the book of your top 10 moments wandering through neighborhoods and knocking on doors. We only have a minute left. Do you remember one of those moments? Well, there were many, of course, but uh, at one point I drooled on the petition that I was asking someone to sign, and uh, they signed it anyway. <laughs> it was kind of amazing. Another, another time a big gust of uh, wind came and blew the door off the hinges, just as I was saying, my name is Dee Dee Feldman. I'm wondering <laughs> if you have any concerns about state government. Now I wish we could hear all of them because those were great. <laughs> Dee Dee Feldman, thank you so much for talking to us about your book, 10 More Doors. Thank you for having me.
alluded to it just a little bit ago, but we took some extra time to talk to Didi. Uh, just didn't have time to squeeze it in the show, but a great conversation about a couple of things. First, about something that she went to, to find out when she first decided to run for office uh, that would help her, she thought, in running her campaign. And when she did it, she found out she's the first person to ever ask for this information. So won't teach you too much on that. It'll be right off the top in terms of what that information was. It also leads into that great discussion about redistricting and how important it is that we do that in a nonpartisan way in New Mexico. And of course, we're going through that process right now as we do once every 10 years. And we have made a strong commitment here at New Mexico PBS to try to keep the information about the process as transparent and accessible as possible. We are live streaming as many of the redistricting committee meetings as we can. A couple more of those coming up this week. And the final maps will be decided by mid-month. So it's important to be involved. There's still time to get your input in on that. The redistricting committee, of course, is a new approach in and of itself, approved by lawmakers last year um, to, again, try to keep the gerrymandering and the packing and cracking that we know happens in the redistricting process out of the process. So voting is as as fair and representative as possible. So here's a little more with correspondent Gwyneth Dolan and Senator Didi Feldman. Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller's defense of his seat at City Hall began in earnest this week as challengers Eddie Aragon and Bernalillo County Sheriff Manny Gonzalez went after the mayor in two separate forums. The Black Voters Collaborative and a joint debate sponsored by KKOB Radio and the Chamber of Commerce. The big topics were crime and homelessness, as you might imagine, two very visible challenges for the state's biggest urban area. Here to talk politics, here's our line opinion panel. Public health expert Michael Byrd is with us once again this week. So is former House Minority Whip Daniel Foley. And we'll start with attorney Laura Sanchez. Now, Laura, it's always interesting to hear the candidates talk in the presence of their opponents. <laughs> Did anyone make or lose ground from the first two forums this week? Well, you know, it is it is always interesting when you see all of them up mm-hmm. there together. You, We saw some very different styles, I think. Um, and it's interesting to see sort of the their approach in terms of attacking um obviously it's <laughs> tim keller is our current mayor he's the guy that's got more i think of the you know the presence and he's going to be on the defensive um and the other two are going to be attacking him but i thought overall um uh, the mayor came out looking i think as expected very mayoral right i mean mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. he very much was talking about the future was was being more um broad about stuff and the others were really trying to narrow in um on on their particular issue and crime was a big big part of the entire um the entire feel and i think that's an important issue for us mm-hmm. and one that uh that the mayor has to figure out how to address mm-hmm. hey daniel gotta go right to you on this one eddie aragon of course is a republican and manny gonzalez is sort of running like a republican uh, is there enough undecided votes out there for a winner to emerge from those two, or are we hoping, they hoping for a runoff? Uh, no and no. No and no. Okay. Why and why? Uh, yeah, so so I think the only chance that anybody had of defeating Mayor Keller was with Manny, with, was with Manny Gonzalez being able to corral Republican votes and pick off non-progressive Democrats. Mm-hmm. 
Um, now, with Eddie Aragon getting in and decisively going to split the Republican votes, um, it, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, Mayor Tim Keller should be thanking Eddie Aragon and throwing a huge party for him. Uh, because I think he was in a battle if it was a one-on-one race. Mm-hmm. I think without there being a one-on-one race, it's a he's going to win a huge victory. Um, and and I think that uh, you know it's it's interesting because you know in these one-on-one battles, as the incumbent, you you got to be careful mm-hmm. because everything is focused on you. Once it becomes three or more everything's not focused on you anymore. Mm-hmm. You got these guys doing their side battles over here right. and it deflects some of the opportunity for you to look. And as Laura said very well, very eloquently, you know, you get to be the one who seems like you're the eloquent leader, the adult in the room, because those guys are squabbling. They're both coming after you and you get to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. put yourself above it. So, but let me, yeah, ask, I don't, you, let me I don't, ask you this though, does that squabbling and add up to a less than 50% take for no. the mayor and we get into a runoff that does not know because seem... th- because mm-hmm. because you ha- the mayor's going to get all the progressives there's no doubt that the mayor is the progressive Good darling they're, yeah. they're they're not moving mm-hmm. now all of the conservatives republicans are going to go for eddie aragon the hardcore conservatives and you got this group in the middle who probably doesn't care now that they aren't they feel like they're not going to make a difference mm-hmm. right you know going out there when you say listen i'm going to go vote for manny because i think we're going to beat tim keller now you're going to throw your hands in the air like never mind it's not worth my time which i think just adds to the reason why tim keller uh will win re-election i i think he'll win it easily on election night and i think it'll be a wow uh, a, an easy victory for him on election night dude we're some weeks away are you, are you seriously well, I mean, clearly something could happen between now and then. There's no doubt about it. We literally just elected a U.S. congresswoman who ran against a sitting state senator who, thanks to the incompetency of the Republican Party, couldn't even win his own Senate district in the race. So what Fair makes point. you think that there is any move with and that race? That seat is wholly contained in the city of Albuquerque. What makes you think that anything has changed from that election to this election, that there's going to be this groundswell movement uh against the mayor i don't see it mm-hmm. i just i don't see it i don't see that there's been a a uh, a good enough job now we can have a long conversation about why i don't see that and what the ramifications let me are ask, but let me ask you to I hold that i gotta get my man michael getting my mind michael in here good good points though for sure uh you know michael tim keller was first on the air this week with an ad talking about how he's handled all their hurdles you know in front of him during the pandemic you know it's important for two reasons first as just mentioned, he has the chance to define himself more to more casually involved voters. And second, it's not clear if either of his opponents will be able to mount an effective ad campaign. That's the part that interests me. I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I'd say ditto, ditto to Dan. I think that uh, I think I think he's got it right on this. Um, mm-hmm. And I just um, you know when when you look at the qualification qualifications of the candidates to begin with. Um, at least in my mind, it's real clear that uh, Mayor Keller is is the best qualified. That's number one. Um, and number two is um, he's he, in fact, is is ad- addressing some significant issues that are not unique to Albuquerque. Um, you look at any you look at I mean, you look at any of the any most of the major cities mm-hmm. and some cities that I'm familiar with, you know, um, the L.A. area more recently. And, um, hey, we got men- well, we got mentioned in that New York Times piece this week about uh, the yeah. rates going up. Albuquerque got a shout out. <laughs> Hate to say it that well, way. Well, uh, many cities mm-hmm. are uh, the rates are going up. It's yeah. it's not something that's just unique to Albuquerque. 
um, I mean, it's unfortunate that we're, we're in the mix again, but um, it's not unusual. But how does that play? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, it's going up everywhere, but folks only care about what's going on up the block, if, if you know what I mean. That's, that's the important part. How do these mayoral candidates address that part of the crime issue? Yeah. Well, I think, oh, oh, go ahead. Dan, go ahead, please. Dan, you got a thought? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, look, I think that the one thing that we're seeing you know, crime, you know, the one thing that we've learned in elections is it is it always seems to be about it's the economy, stupid, mm -hmm. right? It's the economy, stupid. And, um, you know, the one thing that you got to give Mayor Keller credit for is whether he's right or wrong, he's out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't go to an event that you don't bump into him. And I think that in a in a big town that happens to be a city like Albuquerque, politics is local. And I think that, um, you know, it's clear this whole deal, the whole run in with the count with the city clerk did not help Manny at all. Right. Um, I right. think the addition of Eddie Aragon didn't help Manny at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Keller has done a decent job in the perception of that he's the mayor who's leading. Look, one thing that we found is that regardless of the outcome of what you're doing, it seems like as long as people see your face and hear your voice, they believe that you're leading. And I think that, you know, uh, you know, we can have a long conversation about the murder rates and the way the Albuquerque Police Department's being handled and the homelessness crisis in Albuquerque. I don't think he's done a great job on a lot of those venues. But most people I know, you know, they, they know him. They, mm -hmm. I don't know anybody that doesn't claim to have a relationship or a friendship with Tim Keller or at least know him. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, I met him in a game, saw him here, met him at a restaurant. So, you know, what, what, it's all politics are local. It, I appreciate that point. Uh, Laura, let me go to this um, about Sheriff Gonzalez. We've kind of a little bit light on him in this segment here. I thought his quote that he described the city as, quote, at a crossroads of total anarchy, end quote. Just a little bit out there a little bit. How, how would you express, you know, what, how did you take that when you heard that, that bit? Uh, I took that as a as an extreme exaggeration. Mm -hmm. um, one, you know, the kind of framing that he appears to be trying to do is is say, you know, everything is, you know, the sky's falling and I'm the one who's going to protect you from it. Mm -hmm. uh, was was what I think he was trying to convey, but it was it just came across as insulting, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think that we're in total anarchy. I don't think things are that bad. Yes, we have a, a very serious crime problem. Um, property crime, murder rates, violent crime is up, and, and that should be a concern for everybody. But mm -hmm. I don't And some see... other things are down. Some other things are down. Property crime, things like that. Let me spin to Michael real quick on, on the same question. I see you, you may have a thought there. Uh, again, is this the way to win votes? Is, is, is to have people think we're at the brink of some kind of disaster? Is, is that his best card, I, I should ask? I, no, I don't. I think playing to people's fear is is not the way to go i think most people are still pretty rational i understand that there clearly there's there's some issues mm -hmm. but but playing to people's fear doesn't doesn't benefits no one and i don't think in the long run it'll benefit him mm -hmm. yeah i think playing to people's fear Real works quick, yeah. only if you've got an answer to it i think the problem that hurts manny gonzalez is with all the stuff that's gone on with police across the country in the news to be a sheriff that was opposed to a body armor camera to, to potty cameras doesn't play very well. I mean, right. I think, you know, people people are not anti, I, look, I'm not anti-police by any means. Mm -hmm. I'm not a defund the police guy, but I do believe in accountability. And so when you say, listen, the city's in chaos, I'm the guy that's gonna bring relief, but I wasn't for, 
you know, bring in accountability. I just don't think it plays well. I, I, and, and I, I, just, I got I to jump in and nor do the numbers in the county stack up. And he got challenged on that as well when it comes to crime. We have to leave it there. Before we go, I wanted to let you know we'll air the Black Voters Collaborative Forum next week as a New Mexico in Focus special. Early voting will be just kicking off, and for many of our viewers, it'll be a valuable tool as they decide how to vote. Now, we're back in a minute. Talk about how New Mexico students are performing. The state's Climate Advisory Panel recently released a massive report about the impacts we're already experiencing in New Mexico of climate change. Again, it's a, a weighty read, and there's a lot in there, and we already sort of common sense tells us a lot of these things that the, the study confirms around the impacts of rising temperatures in New Mexico, water shortages, uh, more a devastating fire seasons, longer fire season things you've heard us talk about a lot here. But uh, environmental correspondent Laura Paskus wanted to dive into a little bit about that uh, with Wild Earth Guardians, an environmental group here in town. Also, what they think is missing from the report, which is really about our streams and rivers and planning for those. But the good news is there's still time to get public input in on this report and what our strategies should be for the next half century. So really important right now to help drive the conversation for the next five decades. Also want to let you know you can find a link to that report in the description to this show. We encourage you to check that out when you get a chance. Let us know what pops out to you or what you didn't already know so we can dive into it more in the future here on the show. But here now, Laura Paskus. Hey everyone, I'm here with Trisha Snyder with Wild Earth Guardians, and it is an incredible rainy afternoon in Albuquerque. I hope that y'all had a chance to at least go outside and stand in this rain a little bit. Um, hi, Trisha. Hi, excited to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. So this month, the state's Climate and Water Science Advisory Panel released a report, and it's called Climate Change in New Mexico Over the Next 50 Years, Impacts on Water Resources. And this is a report that's going to help guide the state's 50-year water plan. We'll drop links um, as we go. It's a really interesting report, and it's a very dense report. Um, but Trisha, for you, something is missing. What is that? Yeah, so, you know, Wild Earth Guardians, we work all across the West to protect and restore wildlife, wild places, wild rivers, and the health of the American West. Um, and in reading the report, you know, there's a lot of really great information in there. There, It is really dense. It's almost 250 pages. But one thing that we think is really missing is um, the impacts to the ecological health of rivers and streams across the state. Um, a lot of the pieces are there. You know, they we talk about how uh, potential evapotranspiration is going to change. We talk about how sediment loading may change, and we talk about you know a, a number of the pieces that kind of bring all of that together. But it 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 isn't coalesced in a meaningful way. And since this is the foundation for the 50-year water plan, um, we think we really need to make sure that we get it right. Um, and uh, you know, I think Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham really outlined it in her plan for how to manage the state's waters 
um, that we need to rethink the way that we manage water here in New Mexico. And part of that is recognizing the sort of historic injustices that have been done to rivers and streams. Um, I focus on the Rio Grande here in, in the middle, uh, I'm, I'm based in Albuquerque, but um, focus on the middle, uh, are on the Rio Grande and, um, you know, we can't we can't lose these these rivers. They're they're just far too valuable. Um, there also really is no uh, discussion on the impacts to endangered species, um, and there is no in, uh, discussion on impacts to recreation. So we think all, those are kind of the three big pieces that are really missing from this report. Although it does cover a lot of um, needed information. So one of the things that I think about a lot and, and, and talk to people all over the state about is kind of the way that we have decided that we see our rivers in the 20th and 21st century. It's like we use them, we use them, right? We need them for farms, we need them for cities, we even need them for recreation. But what about just what they are all on their own? Do we, are we talking about that enough? Yeah, and I would argue that we're not. You know, I, I think that um, we really need to have a focus on living rivers and um, the sort of entity that a river is in and of itself. You're absolutely right that all across the American West, we have put a focus on rivers as conveyance channels of how do we get water from point A to point B um, and hopefully as quickly as we can. Um, you know, I grew up in El Paso, so south of Elephant Butte Reservoir. This is an everyday lived experience for folks. Um, south of the reservoir, communities like Las Cruces and El Paso do not have water in the river for most of the year. At best, you're looking at maybe a couple of months during irrigation season. And many years, it's not even that. Um, so, you know, we really need to kind of go back to the drawing board and rethink how we're valuing and managing our rivers if we want to ensure that we have them for future generations, which, you know, I think we do. I, I moved in, Albu uh, in April to Albuquerque. And even though this has been such a tough summer here and it has been horrific to just sort of see the ecological effects of the drying of the river, I'm also constantly reminded, you know, every day I'm like, hey, there is still a connected river here in Albuquerque. There is still this beautiful bosque that I can go and walk with my dog. Um, and so I think our hope in sort of ringing this bell is that there is a process for folks to weigh in on this important planning effort. Um, and, and the public needs to get involved and say, hey, you know, we value our rivers beyond just what they can, how they can move water from one place to another. So let's talk just for a minute about the Rio Grande. Um, I was out there today in the rain early this morning. It was, you know, this, we're not getting a ton of rain, but it's like this nice, gentle, consistent rain um, that I almost felt like everything in the bosque today was like just exhaling a little bit. You know, it's not super hot. It's not, the sun's not pounding down on everything. Um, but at least as of yesterday, there's about 30 miles of the Rio Grande dry south of Albuquerque in three different stretches. Um, you know, who should, who should care about this? This was a tough year for farmers, for sure. Cities have had to make, make um, changes in, in how they are getting water and delivering water, but, but who really needs, like who cares if, if the river is dry? 
You know, I think everybody cares. Um, with this summer, I have been very fortunate to be working with an intern um, who is an excellent journalism student at New Mexico State. And um, we've been working on a photojournalism project of just kind of documenting not only the ecological effects of the drying of the river, but also the different ways that people connect with the Rio Grande. And I have just learned so much about you know, people love to go biking and riding horses and, you know, th this river and rivers across the state mean so much to the people of New Mexico. And I think, you know, the bottom line for us is that the strategies that got us here of um, sort of prioritizing irrigated agriculture as the number one water use, of not looking at the system as sort of this holistic thing that we need to take into account all water uses and values, and of prioritizing the environment last and sort of saying, you know, we can worry about that when we're not in a drought year. Um, those are not going to be the strategies that get us out of this. Um, and so we really need to kind of go back to the drawing board, make sure that everybody has a seat at the table and we can create a plan moving forward that does manage our waters um, holistically across the state, you know, um, because, yeah, it, it, it does matter to everybody. So my focus is often on the Rio Grande just because it's close to my house and I can go see it every day. Um, any other concerns looking across the state and any of the other states' rivers? I know the Pecos has um, been, been low, but also the reservoirs seem to be doing you know, better there than um, the Rio Grande. Kind of what are we looking at across the state? Yeah, you know, I, I think the story is similar across the state. And um, one thing that I really was appreciative of in the um, uh, the leap ahead analysis is often what this report is called. And there's a whole chapter dedicated to kind of regional differences and how things will change across the state. And I really encourage folks, if you can only look at one chapter thoroughly, maybe pick that one because it's really interesting. Um, but we're seeing this same story play out all across the American West. Basins are over allocated. Um, we are not living within rivers means. We need to kind of go back and figure out, all right, what is the water that we have? What is the water that we're projected to have into the future? And let's have some tough conversations. You know, I, I think um, there is a line in the report, uh, I think it's Phil King's chapter, where it, they say that, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but the uncomfortable reality of climate change is that the status quo is no longer an option. And that just really resonated really deeply with me, because I think that is sort of the fundamental driver of the conversations we need to be having and they are going to be hard and we are going to have some tough decisions ahead of us but the only way that we can ensure that that process um, is equitable and that that process centers stewardship and sustainability the way that the governor outlined in um, her plan is uh, is to ensure that all voices are being heard and that we do you know, prioritize the different values across the state. Right. Well, thank you, Tisha, for talking with me. Um, you've got your dog in the photo in the background, and I have mine continually <laughs> me with one of his toys. Coming to you from the Pascus Living Room Home Studio today. Um, so we're going to drop lots of these links into the comments here. You can read the report. You can read more about the panel, and you can... Um, comment on the Interstate Stream Commission's 
public comment page. Um, Trisha, thanks so much for joining me. And um, yeah, I hope we can meet out at the river sometime soon. I'd love that. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Trisha. Thanks. All right, I want to bring a little extra for you from the show. Well, actually, it wasn't from the show because we just didn't have time for it. It's our weekly show warm-up that we do on Facebook Live every week to help us all get warmed up for the taping. This is our chance to go around the table and find out what folks are paying attention to that we aren't going to cover in the show. What are the stories, the issues, the people that are catching their eye? And as always, uh, just a great collection here including sort of the tone uh, of our politics and discussions these days, which we all know are difficult to say the least right now. So here now, once more, the Line Opinion Panel and host, Gene Grant. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our Line Opinion Panelists joining me on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do... We'd like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds. So many issues out there. We start with the man, Dan Foley. Haven't seen you for a little bit. Dan, hope life treating you well. Thank you very much. Missed that fist pump. What's your one more thing this week, bro? Uh, my one more thing this week is, uh, you know, just the complete and utter chaos that we're seeing in politics, not only in across the country, but uh, in New Mexico, at the city of Albuquerque. It just... You know, regardless of party affiliation, this is not a pro-Republican, pro-Democrat. I just think there's no adults in charge in the room anywhere right now. It just seems like whether it's people criticizing, whether it's people being angry, whether it's people fighting for or against something, it just seems to be that we seem to have turned into a country that just wants to fight. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I just can, what can I, I find can amazing I, Can I put it out there? Like, I have to beg a question. Who started that? I mean, who roiled the country to get to this place was it perhaps the last president is that no, fair this has been going on this has been building i i know i know people want to say that and i'm no trump supporter mm -hmm. or fan mm -hmm. um I, I i don't think i don't think trump is the cause i think he's a symptom okay and i think that he's you know i just think that we've been moving in that direction and it just seems to be more and more advantageous that you know and and i look i i think without going into a 30-minute monologue i i don't i don't blame trump i don't blame democrats republicans right now i i think it's a whole social media situation right mm -hmm. mike tyson said it best being able to post stuff anonymously has made people become really tough we used to get punched right in the mouth and uh you know this ability now to post something anonymously attack somebody spew your opinion without even thinking through the ramifications of what you say mm -hmm. seems to become the norm instead of the exception how do we used turn, to be, how do we turn that around form. how do we turn that around uh, i think accountability i think accountability mm -hmm. i think you know we just have to start saying whether it's elected politicians whether it's the news media whether it's each other we just have to start holding people accountable and say you know um, I, you know, one of the things I've started doing is I, you know, I'm not looking to engage people in the fights anymore, but I think in, you know, in normal conversation, I think we should be having more of that, whether it's around the table, whether it's around the bar, whether it's with our friends mm -hmm. and we should just be, you know, I, I, I'm trying to work hard, lots of medicine and counseling, uh, at coming up with saying, listen, you know, we just agree to disagree, but I hear what you're saying and realizing at the end of the day that disagreement doesn't mean we're enemies. Right. Um, sometimes it's a good foundation for us to find something we agree on. But I just I've just this last few weeks has just been 
it's come to my it's come to fruition and not just the last few weeks sure there literally seems to be no adults in charge anywhere in our country right now at any level of government and i think we're going to be in trouble if we don't fix that all right i appreciate that that's that's uh you wouldn't be alone on that thought i'm sure laura sanchez always good to see you what's your one more thing this week um well my one more thing is um about uh changes fall is here i'm really happy to see the end of september it's been a tough month Mm -hmm. for me on a lot of levels but i'm really looking forward to just you know october coming in pumpkin spice lattes (laughs) Um, nice fiesta and i'm actually taking a trip this weekend um going out to uh chicago gonna watch a bears game oh cool really really excited about that um and just you know things football and just fall i'm just looking forward to um a positive month so you know it sounds like you need a break we all need a break you know what i mean september was tough we were talking to some of the crew before we started taping September's been so up and down. The equinox is always sort of a weird emotional <laughs> deal in the fall, but for some reason, this one's been tough. I've had this conversation, Laura, with a lot of folks, if that helps you feel a little bit better. It's, it's been tough. Yeah. September's been tough. <laughs> it really has. has. I've been up and down. It's been, it's been a tough month. So, But I'm super jealous you're actually going to go see the Chicago Bears. I love Chicago. Yeah. I haven't been there in years. Good for yeah. you. Fall means football, so I'll, I'll settle with a high school game while you're out in Chicago. So. Well, actually, you know what? I also am catching a White Sox game. Oh, um, no kidding. Okay. Friday. So at a, actually, at the time that this is going to air, the New Mexico Focus, I'll be at a White Sox game, and they're playing the Tigers. And when they played earlier this week, they had a bench-clearing incident. Oh, right. So it's going to be fun. Yes. <laughs> Laura Sanchez is going to be the cause of another bench-clearing brawl. See, some things never change, Laura. Just don't run out in the field. Just don't run out in the field. That's all we ask. <laughs> so do that. Have fun. That's a great trip. Hey, Michael Bird, always good to see you. What's your one more thing this week? Well, <clears throat> my one more thing is um, along the lines of the Albuquerque Indian School and, and some of the graves that have been discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, but, in, but in a positive note, as far as the Canadian government, Canadian government actually and Trudeau declared today, September 30th, uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation oh. as it relates to, to the First Nations populations and some of the horrific stories that have come out about the boarding schools in Canada. Uh, and um, I just think that uh, it, it, it is challenging, but it's really important that many of these things that people have buried literally and figuratively um, are coming to light because mm-hmm. I think that it takes light um, as opposed to darkness to really um, uh, begin to understand uh, part, of, part, part of it has to do with the history of this nation, and I think it has, clearly has to do with where we are right now today mm-hmm. um, and some of the policies that, that have impacted many communities and, and disenfranchised many communities. And until we have a thorough and better understanding, um, uh, we will not be able to move forward uh, together. Mm-hmm. I, I got two questions. The Canadian situation is so heart-wrenching. It, it, it's difficult to look square in the eye at, and it's easy to do it because it's another country as well. It's easy to turn away. Should we re- really be leaning into the Canadian situation right now? Because the numbers are just absolutely harrowing. They're just frightening when you let your emotions get around them. Is it, it, I, I, my sense of it is it is good for Americans to look at this, but I'm curious where your sense is. 
Well, I think Americans need to look at this and maybe follow the lead. The prime minister mm-hmm. apologized to the to the native community in Canada. Uh, he urged yep. the Pope to do the same. Mm-hmm. And there are parallels. Um, there, are, there are some significant parallels in terms of, of some of the policies that Canada implemented as it relates to the U.S. And, um, and be it boarding schools, be it, um, be it um, the mission system in, in California and yeah. the enslavement of Native people across all of California, and the genocide that took place in, 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 in California was significant. And many people are just totally unaware of, uh, I think maybe if we need a vaccine, there's one, we need a vaccine for ignorance and mm-hmm. uh, among other things. Mm-hmm. One more question, uh, the second of the two I wanted to ask you, what's the best next step for the city of Albuquerque to handle the situation you referred to at the beginning? Do we, should we just go all the way there? and just you know, get after it and, and take our licks, as they say, and, and take the lessons learned and move forward? Well, it's my understanding that the, the city has been in con- already been in conversation with some of the tribal leadership in the area. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, um, I think if, if, if they can sit down and, and, and come to some appreciation and understanding of, of where things are at and come up with, um, um, I, I think a, an option, a, a vehicle for addressing the issue that comes both from the Native community and from the local community at large, mm-hmm. uh, that would be the best way to handle it. Um, I think that it, it clearly needs to be, there needs to be a conversation. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement. And um, in some form or fashion, I think there needs to be, it needs to be addressed and, and, and remedied in some fashion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I understand the Presbyterian Church was the one that started the school to begin with, uh, and then the federal government took that over. Uh, maybe there, I think there just needs to be a thorough vetting of this issue. Mm-hmm. Good point there. Hey, we'll have to wrap that up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here in New Mexico PBS. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus. We've got a special episode coming up for you on Friday night when we bring you the New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative mayoral debate, which was held recently, and we live streamed that. I think it's a great way to get everyone up to speed on this important race as early voting starts. Uh, October 5th is when you can vote in person early at the county clerk's office as well as start sending in your absentee ballots. And then more locations for early voting will open up shortly thereafter. And so election season on us once again, and we want to get you educated and informed there. Hear from the three main candidates in the mayoral race. That's Tim Keller, the incumbent, Manny Gonzalez, who is the Bernalillo County Sheriff, and Eddie Aragon, a radio personality here in town. So that'll be on the next episode. Until then, stay up to date with us on all our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. You can find us any of those places. Let us know what you're seeing and hearing. Have a terrific weekend or week, everyone. I'm Kevin McDonald, executive producer at New Mexico PBS. Have a great one. Thank you.